0: Now, one of the questions we struggle to deal with today, but that um, is one of the key questions the past is answering or looking to address, is how do we deal with evil? Not just how do we deal with it, but how do we understand evil in the world? Now, this isn't just an academic issue for us right now, because I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last week, there's been quite a lot of reporting about the fact that under the vulnerable conditions that COVID has created, there has been an increase in fraud, Experian, the um, fraud agency, has estimated that there's been a 33% increase in fraud. That is, that there seems to be a a kind of a dynamic that's going on of exploiting people who are already vulnerable and now using their vulnerability for others to get rich or to take advantage of them. Not only um, fraud and the exploitation of vulnerable people that way, but also there's been an increase in domestic and sexual violence and abuse. And as a category, abuse has greatly increased as a percentage of the overall crime that is going on in the country at the moment. And this isn't academic um, for any of us, I imagine. Um, I think of a friend of mine who just over this last week, um, she was phoned up by someone who had managed to hack some of her accounts and get hold of her details, and in quite a sophisticated con, they said that they were the police. They were phoning from a false number that represented itself as Holborn Police Station. And then in the course of it, they threatened her with arrest and said that she was going to be denied bail, and this went on for tens of minutes until she was able to reach out to other people and someone was able to come around and help her see that it was fraud and she was able to avoid it, but they were gearing up to try to take money from her. Someone who's already vulnerable with all that we're coping with, with COVID at the moment, and some people see it as an opportunity to exploit people. How do we deal? How do we make sense of evil and how do we deal with it? Well, that's what this passage is looking at and what it's trying to deal with. And we're going to see two ways that Zechariah 5 helps us to see what God is going to do to deal with evil in the land then and today. Two ways. First of all, justice will be done. And secondly, sin will be removed. Let's look, first of all, at justice will be done. Just to recap a bit on the context, the visions of Zechariah work from out to in, and so the first three visions match the last three visions as they deal with the kind of external things of what God is doing to bring his people back into the land and to rebuild the temple and the city. And so our visions today, visions number six and seven, match visions two and three. If you can remember back to those two visions What we saw when Mark preached on them was we saw that God is going to bring the nations into the city and God himself is going to return with his glory to the city and to the temple. And what we see in today's passage is parallel to that because we see that in order for the Lord to come in with his glory and his presence into the midst of the temple and the city and in order for the nations to come in, something's got to go out wickedness and evil and sin have to be dealt with. They have to be removed from the city. Well, let's see how God is going to do that. Look with me, first of all, at this vision, which is a little bit unusual. It's going to take a while for us to understand all the symbolism of it, but we'll get there. And it's a vision of a flying scroll, this enormous flying scroll that is 30 feet by 15 feet. So it's kind of a huge billboard with two sides to it, and it's flying over the land so that everyone can see It's universal. Everyone can see what's written on it. Verse 3, And he said to me, This is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other side, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. And then the Lord prophesies that what this is um, depicting is going to happen. Verse 4, The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and stones. we we'll look at a few things to notice. First of all, the word here, curse, doesn't mean a kind of um, a witch's spell or anything like that. It's the Old Testament word for the just judgment on wrongdoing. So you see it um, in Genesis chapter 3, the curses on sin that Adam and Eve and all humanity commit. You see it again in Deuteronomy, for example, the curses on the sin of the people. So this is God's judgment. This is the verdict on wrongdoing and sin. Secondly, do you notice how there were the two particular kind of aspects of moral wrongdoing or sin that were picked up on? One was every thief will be banished, and the other one was everyone who swears falsely. Now, the Old Testament people would know and Jews would know that that matches up to the two halves of the Ten Commandments. The second half of the Ten Commandments are the social commandments, and so do not steal is representing that half. And do not swear falsely is the third commandment in the first part of the commandments, which matches about how we are to treat God, as this is about not taking the Lord's name in vain, not swearing things or swearing by the temple rather than trusting God. In other words, this billboard is dealing with all wrongdoing in the land, whether it's wrongdoing about how we treat one another socially or whether it's wrongdoing about how we treat God. The billboard is going, to deal, or is going to deal with all of wrongdoing because God is dealing with all wrongdoing. And I think the reason these particular commandments are picked up on is related to Jeremiah chapter 7. Have a look at it later if you have the opportunity. But in Jeremiah 7... We have a prophecy of someone standing in the gate of the temple, coincidentally a place which is 30 feet by 15 feet, the same dimensions as this giant billboard or scroll. And there, the two particular sins that the Lord indicts His people for is one swearing falsely by the temple, saying that judgment would never come because we have the temple. In other words, not trusting God's Word, but trusting false promises. And secondly, stealing from the vulnerable and the poor. It's the kind of the ancient equivalent of the fraud we're seeing today, exploiting vulnerable people to get rich. And so what this is saying is that the the curses on sin that God had prophesied, they did come true in the exile. As the people were carted off to Babylon, this was God executing justice. You know, Scripture asks this powerful question, will not the God of all the earth do what is right? And he will. Now, look, I'm conscious as I I talk about justice and evil and sin that this is just tough for modern or postmodern ears for us to hear today. You know, we don't like these concepts. We feel emotionally uneasy, and I think we find it intellectually difficult. There are two dominant kind of ways that we try to understand evil and think of evil today, and I I think they make it difficult for us to, to square with what the Bible says. The first way would be what I say. I think we cartoonize it. This is often the approach in the popular press, but we also default to it. That is, we like to think of the world divided neatly into goodies and baddies. You know, so often when I'm talking to people about Christianity, they say things like this to me. They say, well, well, Pete, you know, yeah, it's good that God's going to judge evil, but that's not for me because I'm a good person. In other words, we think of the kind of axis of evil and we think of evil people doing evil things over there, but then the rest of us, we're not perfect, but we're basically good. We're the goodies, Right? So there's a cartoonizing of evil, an oversimplicity. We know with a moment's thought or reflection that doesn't really work. And then the flip side of that is we do we naturalize evil, which is we say there's no such thing really as good, and evil, we all understand that we're all a bit messed up and we're the product of bad choices that we make and maybe bad choices that our parents made. And so we need to be helped to make better choices through psychology and therapy, but good and evil is just too simplistic. So we kind of do away with the categories. But whether we cartoonize it or naturalize it, neither of those really work. One makes it too simplistic, the other one denies that there is any such thing as objective evil. But how then do you make sense of real acts of evil? Like the Holocaust, is that just people dealing with the choices of their parents and their own bad choices? No, 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 that is evil, isn't it? And God does neither cartoonize it, nor does he naturalize it, rather God deals with it, sees it for all of the mess that it is. And I wonder, because of these cultural approaches of dealing with evil and kind of dismissing it in in some sense, that's probably why there's been a surge of revenge films. You know, think of Liam Neeson in Taken or Denzel Washington um, in The Equalizer or John Wick, you know, and Keanu Reeves, Reeves playing um, you know, John Wick. You know, we love these revenge movies because we've got to do something with our anger and if we don't think that there's justice, then it gets distorted into revenge. And so the kind of slow motion as the baddie has dealt the death blow at the end of the film and the music crescendos and we zoom in on his eyes and we kind of delight in that and there's something perverse about it. Now, if we're going to deal with evil, we need to see that justice will be done. God will see that justice is done. There will be a day when there will be universal justice, and that includes you and me, when all evil, all wrongdoing is going to be faced up with, when everything that's been declared in secret will be shouted from the rooftops, when the books will be opened and we'll all be treated as the morally responsible agents, as adults, that we are. Not explaining away just as a result of bad choices, equally not separating things in simplicity of good and bad people, but dealing with all of our choices and all of the consequences of our choices. And ultimately, that's good news, because justice says that things matter, that how I treat you matters, that how the vulnerable are exploited matters if there is no justice then it doesn't matter it's just a world of stuff happening might being right and our deepest intuitions are that's wrong when evil is done it must be dealt with will not the judge of all the earth do what is right the bible asks he will he will judge evil at that last day fully and finally And he will judge evil with the same level of intensity that he cares about the vulnerable, with compassion. Secondly, if God is going to judge evil, then we need to see that also sin will be removed. And we come to this rather strange image of the woman in a basket, in which, as it says in verse six, in the basket is, it is a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Now, we need to see, first of all, um, that this isn't some kind of patriarchal text and it portrays um, a woman as being iniquity here because the Bible's got a down on women. That can't be the case because this is all in the context of describing God's people and God's city, and they are also described as women in the Bible. City, um, God's city, Zion, is a woman. And ultimately, God's people are the bride. So we have to get our heads around the fact that God values women so highly that his redeemed people are the bride of God. He elevates women. Now, the reason I think that iniquity is personified as a woman here is because the word for um, iniquity here is a word that sounds very, very much like the word asherah. So it's hasherah here is um, for iniquity. And so Asherah was a Canaanite idol, idol, um, a woman, the fertility goddess, and God's people would frequently turn away from God to worship her. So this is God speaking into the situation of the day and saying, one of the ways my people are sinning is by committing idolatry with Asherah. Now, what's going on here, this basket with a lead cover over it and iniquity inside it, and it's been carried off by two winged women or winged creatures, is it's a kind of anti ark If you know your Bible a little bit, you'll know that the Ark of the Covenant was similarly a box, and inside were the Ten Commandments, in other words, God's righteous requirements. And over the top of the Ark was the mercy seat, And incidentally, in Hebrew, the word here for lead cover that's in the verses sounds very, very similar to the word for mercy seat in Hebrew. And then over the top of the ark were two cherubim, two winged creatures. And then when God's people sin, in Ezekiel chapter 10, there's a vision of the ark departing from the temple and from the city. In other words, God's presence leaving as the winged creatures, the cherubim, fly it off. So here's the point. If God's glory is going to come back in to the midst of his people, then something needs to leave because God can't dwell with sin. He's too pure, he's too perfect, he's too holy. Sin has to leave. And so this anti ark full of the sin of all of God's people, with a lead cover over the top to kind of contain it and keep it all in so it doesn't escape, that is going to be carted off just as God's glory is going to come in putting this all together. God's holiness needs to dwell in the midst of God's people for God's people to be glorious, for us to enjoy being with God. But that can only happen if God deals with all wrongdoing, all sin, all injustice. And ultimately, again, this is good news. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of um, being in a perfect place I know it's difficult at the moment to imagine it, but think of um, being on holiday, and let's hope that God willing by this summer we'll be able to be on holiday. And you're in a wonderful place, and it's just like the brochures. Maybe you've had the privilege of being somewhere like that. Everything is right. The sand, the sun, the sea. You're with people you love, and yet you could be miserable. Why? Because of sin. Because if you start to argue with the people you love, it doesn't matter how nice the place is, you can't enjoy it. You know, so much in our lives mars this good world because of us, because of the people we are, because of sin in our midst. And so heaven could never be heaven. The new creation could never be enjoyable if sin's there because we'll just ruin it again. We'll just mess it up. But God is going to do something about it. He will carry sin away. Scripture says as far as the east is from the west so far has the Lord removed our iniquity, our sin, our wrongdoing from us. But as you pause and reflect on that for a moment, whilst that sounds like good news, a moment's reflection also says that's not such good news. Because if justice is going to be done, then that must mean it's universal, because partial justice is no justice at all. And therefore, I've got to be evaluated according to the just standard of justice, and you've got to be evaluated. And if sin is going to be carted off then what guarantee is there that I'm not going to be cast off with that, me, with all of my sin? I mean, can I really say that I could be in God's perfect world and not sin? I can't even go a day without sinning. So something's got to be done, something's got to be dealt with. And there's a wonderful theme of hope here in this passage that I want to point out to you as we close before we apply this. The people reading this would have noticed that this resonates strongly with the most important day in the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. At the Day of Atonement, there was a sacrifice of two goats and two different sacrifices. The first goat was sacrificed for the sin of the people, and that goat was killed by the great high priest, and then the goat was burned, so it was completely destroyed. And that matches the way that iniquity and the judgment on sin is completely destroyed in the first part of the passage. And then the second goat, the priest would symbolically lay his hands over the goat, confessing the sins of the people over that goat, and it would be cast out from God's people. That's where we get the word scapegoat from. One goat destroyed as a judgment on sin. One goat sent out as a symbolic way of saying that the sin of the people has to be removed. And you see that both those dynamics are here. And when Jesus comes, he is the perfect sacrifice. That is the day of atonement, when Jesus dies on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus takes all of God's just Settled, not vengeful, but righteous anger at sin and all the wrongdoing. God cares about the vulnerable. He cares about exploitation and He will do something about it. And on the day, on the cross, when Jesus takes all of the judgment on Himself, He says, I will pay so that others don't have to pay. Jesus was the perfect scapegoat who took the sins of the people on Himself. And as He carried the cross, up the hill of Golgotha, outside of the city walls. He was carrying sin away for us, bearing the shame of it to remove it from us so that we who, as real responsible moral agents, make sinful choices that have real consequences in space, time, and history, we can look at Jesus and we can say, He died for me. He removed my sin. If I trust in him, that's where God's dealing with it. In July 1941, three prisoners appeared to have escaped from Auschwitz camp, and the deputy commander of Auschwitz, who was a cruel man, gathered together the camp and said that because of this, ten people were going to be starved to death from those who were in the Auschwitz camp. And so he ordered 10 people to be selected at random. When one of the men who was selected for this hideous torture, complete absence of justice, was selected, he cried out, My wife! My children! He didn't want to die because of his wife and children. And at that moment, very famously, Catholic priest Father Maximilian Colby stepped forward and he said, Let me take his place. The commander, the deputy commander of the camp didn't quite hear what was going on. He turned around and he said, what does this Polish pig want? And Father Colby pointed to that man with his hand and he says, me for him, I will take his place. He has wife and children. The deputy commander agreed to it. And so Father Maximilian Colby did die in place for that man. Later on, that man wonderfully was able to um, survive Auschwitz and was released when the Allies won. And he said this: "I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned. I could hardly grasp what was going on. The immensity of it, I, the condemned and to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some dream? But of course, it wasn't a dream. And the reason that Father Colby did that was because he knew that Jesus Christ had done that for him. Similarly, this is not a dream. This is Jesus Christ paying in space, time, and history, in the physical realities of his own death and blood, for your sin, for mine, if you will trust in him. Do you trust in him? Justice must be done. There's no way around it. Sin must be dealt with. There'll be no good world without it. And if it's not dealt in Jesus Christ then it will have to be paid for at the last day. My friend, I'm pleading with you. Let that not be the case. Trust in Jesus. And if you do trust in Jesus, these should be wonderful words of hope for you. As I close, three specific applications. First of all, look up. Throughout the passage, Zechariah is asked, what do you see? He's constantly asked, what do you see? That is a great question. Can I ask, as you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, my friend, what do you see? And he's told to look up. And I think the reason he's told to look up is that when you deal with sin, when you deal with injustice in this life, it pushes you down. It pushes your head down. You feel like the weight of it on your shoulders. And as you are pushed down, you know what God says to you? My friend, look up. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus dying there. There is hope. There is redemption. How people are treated matters. Sin matters. Look. Look up. Will you look up to the cross and see hope there? God is dealing with sin. He's dealing with injustice. Our deepest intuitions are that the church should be different. And at a time when some reports are going to be published about the abuse of John or the abuse of John Fletcher, Scripture says, look up. God is dealing with this. God will deal with it in Jesus Christ, or judge it at the last day. Look up, have hope. Secondly, be an agent of justice. God was saying these words to the covenant community. He was pointing out the sin of the former generations so that they would be different and therefore, he wants them to take seriously the call to look after the vulnerable, to look after those who are marginalised, to look after those who are poor, to campaign against the injustice of exploitation. It is so important we do that. It is so important that we are a prophetic community here at Inspire Saint James Well, who take the evil and the injustice that is going on all around us and don't turn a blind eye, but do something about it. That's why we have our serve the community initiatives whether it's the Kanzugi mental well-being course that we offer, or whether it's trying to deal with food poverty, with our food aid. We want to be committed to dealing with injustice and to helping the poor and the marginalized, the vulnerable, whether in our midst or in the wider community. Be an agent of justice. And lastly, remove sin. Again, if God is removing sin from his people, then the big question has to be for us as a church community, are we also committed to doing what god is doing of course looking back to last week we can't do it ourselves this must be done in the power of the spirit he is the great agent his name is the holy spirit he makes his people holy his great labor and longing for his people is for them to be godly to remove sin but it's not that because he's at work we don't do anything individually we must be committed to rooting out sin and as a community we have to be committed to that And actually that's the only way this will be a safe community is if we are striving to be a sinless community because where there's sin, there's danger. And so we're committed to graciousness and compassion and love but we also call sinners to repentance here unreshamedly. My friend, can I ask you, as you look at your life, is there an area where you're giving yourself a hall pass at the moment? You're saying because of lockdown, because of everything else I'm facing, I just don't need to deal with that. Don't. Please be committed to laboring in the power of the Spirit to rooting out sin in your life. Talk to someone about it. Come and talk to one of the leaders at the church about it. Talk to your Inspire group leaders at the church. We won't judge you. We love you. We all deal with our own sin. But we're committed to helping you change and root it out of your life if you will be committed to it too. So look up. See what God is doing. Be an agent of justice in the world and remove sin from your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. They are challenging words. These are challenging visions, but thank you, Lord God, that they speak of glorious realities, judgment, that one day justice will be done, that the way we treat one another matters because you care about us and your people, Lord. Sin being removed because one day you're creating a perfect world. And so we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who bore that judgment for us, the one who bore sin away in his body, and we trust in him, and we pray that you might give us faith to, as we trust in him, be agents of justice and to remove sin from our lives. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.